Welcome to episode 19 of Ed's Not Dead. I'm Robbie Dodd. I'm joined by my co-host. Mr. Crable has some weird... <laughs> I know. It's, it's a season creepy. finale, man. It's, it's, it's bittersweet. Okay. It's bittersweet. Oh, you, you look surprised. I, yes. I, I totally <laughs> didn't know we were doing this. Seriously, I didn't know we were doing you this. You look surprised now. to see me. It's good to see you. Mr. Crabes, how are you? I'm great, man. All right. Welcome to episode 19 and Mr. Casey Siddons. I'm here. All right. You can find me at R.W. Dodd on Twitter, at Peter Crable and at C.H. Siddons. Boys, it's great to be back. Is this the final episode of season one? Yes, this is the final episode. <laughs> I did not. Can you believe? I was let's just really take, take of stock that. of where we are. Okay, let's do that. Take some stock. Take some stock. Take yeah. stock. We're at 19 episodes plus a bunch of extras. Yep. We've we've done an incredible job. <laughs> let me say, we have. Think about that. Yeah. We were in a Starbucks. No, we were at the Corner Pub in Four Corners. We were also at a Starbucks. We were, and where I, we came up with the the the, yep, the name. Yep, yeah, Mr. And Craig here we are. Not dead. Yep. People coming up to me, saying, "Are you the guy from Ed's Not Dead?" I know that's pretty. It's pretty like weird. A, you yeah, feel like a rock star. It's a little awkward. Yeah. <laughs> you and I were in a cubicle the other day talking, and and there was somebody in the cubicle next to us, and they were like, they leaned over and they looked at Casey and I, and they were like, "Am I sitting next to Ed's not planning? <laughs> Are you guys recording yeah. a conversation yeah. right yeah. now? Yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, we got a lot of great feedback about our appearance, the show we did, the interviews we did at yes. the Maryland PTA Diversity Conference. It was um, an awesome opportunity. Yeah, it was great. Thanks again to Francis Frost for inviting us. We had a great time. Uh, so what's going on, fellas? Yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> that, that question totally caught it's you off guard. It's uh, always the flat-footed one. All right. Yeah. All right. So no, let's but just... see, I planted two trees last week. Okay. And... Uh, I got tendonitis in my arm. <laughs> I'm getting old. And he already went to the doctor. I already went to the doctor. <laughs> he gave it a week and went to the doctor. And uh, you know, uh, I, it's so funny because I asked what's going on, and Crable has no response. And, no, he, and he's, he's about to actually... have a third child, <laughs> and he doesn't. And he doesn't even. I, I was, he just How takes, are you it, feeling, it just Mr. Takes, Mr. It just takes a minute. I was, I was, you know, that was that was my lead, and I was going to say I'm about to have a third kid any day now. Third child. Congratulations. Thank you to you and I your. Feel, I feel your, great. Your bride. Yeah. <laughs> by, this time, by the time this comes out, I might have a kid. Yeah, you know? you, well, there's a good chance of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. we have a big show tonight. Do we have any show feedback? No. Alrighty then. Um, <laughs> we are lucky to have Johan Neem. He's a senior fellow at the University of Virginia's Institute for Advanced Studies. He is going to be on the show tonight. Uh, great job booking Dr. Neem, Casey. He has an awesome book. You want to tell yes. us the title? It's called Democracy's Schools, The Rise of Public Education in America. Uh, I don't remember how I found out about the the author. Yeah. But uh, I think it was on yeah, Twitter. I was going to ask you, like, how did you even, that even come across your I, radar? I think someone mentioned it on Twitter, and then I followed up, and I was like, oh, this guy that seems cool. Yeah. I, I, I saw one of his interviews, and I emailed him. Well, I have a lot of great questions prepared for him that I'd like to ask. So. Yeah, I yeah. saw those questions you sent us, and yeah, Crable. We'll see if he's we'll see if he's here at the interview. <laughs> I, don't know if he'll, I don't know if he'll show up. Yeah, I don't. Know. Might have to step out for a couple minutes. I don't. I don't know either. <laughs> uh, anything going out uh, going on in your educational lives? Oh, uh, testing. Yeah, standardized testing season. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, just is what it is. Wrapping things up. It's a busy May month. It's a busy May month. Choral concerts and had a band dance, concerts. a dance concert last week. Okay. Had a chorus concert. Very nice this week. 
Man, I'm. Uh, there's been an interesting controversy on Twitter that has has calmed down a little bit. But someone started it. I can't remember the the hashtag right now, so I have zero information for you that's going to be tangible. <laughs> but uh, someone started a hashtag that was basically pushing teachers to um, use every minute of the instructional day that you have left. And it was it was started with a good intention, but it turned into a firestorm, and people were really upset. Is that our our friend of the show, Mr. Kaz? I saw him tweet something about. Are you referring to this that we only have so much time left? Don't count down the days. Yes, it was it was revolving around okay. that. Yes. Am I a terrible educator? Because the first time I read that, I thought, "What about when I look forward to fishing in June?" <laughs> I mean, I, I what is that? Well, I mean, there's I, I, nothing I, wrong with having things that you look forward to. This no, is, no, this no, no, Robbie, no. you and I are cut from a different cloth. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> I think I think it's more of a. It was more of a. It, it felt like to some that it was condescending, and and assuming. That teachers weren't using instructional time va- in a valuable way. I would agree with that, and I would also th- I would also like to state that I think it's ridiculous that people can't look f- towards the future to things that they want to do. Yeah, I yeah. mean, what is that? I, 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 I would push when back. I was a teacher, I wanted in June I was going to get a week where I was going to go fishing by myself. I looked forward to the yeah. school year being over for that. Absolutely. But did you have a countdown on your on your board? I never did that. Okay. Well, no. that I think that that was one of the. The counter arguments was like you're showing to kids. Well, you only have like 15 days left, so we're not. You know, there's not much time left. So is it about? It's more about every day, not about like every minute of every yes, instructional correct. period. Okay. Correct. Right. Yes. Okay. So let's do a little bit less every day, every day that remains. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't buy that. I mean, I think that's. I I st- I still think people getting upset about a countdown. I think that's a little much. Well, I think it sets the wrong tone. You do. I went into a school last what, year. What message does that send? I went into a school. If you walked into a classroom and a teacher had 35 days left, <laughs> I don't understand if it's like three. I, I went into you know, a school last like year. 35, that's obscene. I went into a school Let's last year. Let's work really hard and get, and get to the end. In September. I guess if that's the message you're sending. In September, yeah. and on the whiteboard in the department room, it said 135 days left of school. I was like, whoa. Well, lots of lot- super early to be <laughs> looking forward. I, I will tell you that lots of elementary schools will do will do countdowns, and they'll do let's mark the middle day of the year and that kind of stuff. I mean, it's sure. it's also a way for kids to kind of just keep track of yeah. where they are. It's a positive way to look at it, right? It's nice. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, I'm not <laughs> advocating that you put up your bulletin boards for the fall and May. <laughs> I'm just, I mean, I knew teachers that did that, too. in the drapes. I worked with some third grade teachers one time that had their spelling words on the bulletin board outside their classrooms before June. Wow. For the first week of school. Yeah. Well, they knew, so, the, they knew the kids coming in would have the same errors in the spelling, right? Yeah, exactly. Data-driven instruction. the same spelling errors. Come on. I don't even know how we apparently, got on this. Apparently. All right. I, I had one piece of anonymous show feedback. We've never done anonymous show feedback, you, have we? Oh, man. Okay. We, we had a great interview. I shouldn't have sent your cell phone number out on Twitter. Back on, I think it was episode 15, where we interviewed uh, Tara Garcia Mathewson from the Heckinger Report. Mm-hmm. Remember? about physics in schools um or if you're casey the hetchinger Hetchinger. yeah he had troubles with that the only reason you and i knew it though because there was a there was a it doesn't matter there was a hardware store just that we knew it that's the only important thing crable just wants to take credit okay it was short and and pretty kind of caustic feedback uh physics in all schools question mark Mm? really Mm. 
It was great how she cited quantitative data to support her points, dot, dot, dot. Oh, wait, it was all narrow and anecdotal. <laughs> hey, great job, man. Wow. I, think that, I think that was, that was I don't know. So, it was kind of rough. Yeah, they were somebody didn't. So, so should we just throw away uh, qualitative feedback? I is that is that what I'll, he's I'll he or she's back, surmising? Well, I'll go back and look. I, I thought there was some quantitative. There data, is quantitative but, but data. I couldn't tell you what it was right now. Well, this person clearly listened to the episode and was yeah. somewhat unimpressed. Hmm. You so. know what's important? Did they listen? That they yeah. listen. That's true. Yeah, we that's appreciate good. you. Yeah, yeah. And uh, listen, if they if they just come and right, if, if they're right, yeah. I'll say they're right. Yeah, you yeah. know. Yeah, I just have no idea. <laughs> All right. <laughs> We have worked really hard all all uh, of our I? first season to not take the show into the gutter. <laughs> Let's do it. If, if you ever listen to our outtakes, uh, which you never will, uh, friends of the show, you would know what goes on when we're not on the air. But um, but we are going to take the show into the gutter tonight. Let's do it. Because you've probably heard about the alleged pooping superintendent. Can I tell you, I had four <laughs> different people email or text me to say, you're going to talk about this on the show, they, right? They, okay. So they, like, yeah. Okay. Sometimes, Casey, you got to give the people what they want. <laughs> Even if it's not what you want. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. All right. So the, in the early lead today, there is an update on the infamous alleged pooping superintendent in New Jersey. Uh, who has got? Well, they updated it. He was get well. He he's dropped his his now former attorney. He's got a new attorney, Michael Cohen, um, <laughs> <laughs> and it's working out really well. <laughs> uh, yeah, totally, totally threw me. The off. next time you see a picture of Michael Cohen, uh, yeah, look at his blazer selection. It's, it's really it bad. Is on but you point, know what? Man. But you know what? All the pictures of him all look like he is guilty as heck. <laughs> Like he it's, has, um, it's because he wears like purple, <laughs> yeah, but flat I, checkered suits. You gotta love Michael Cohen. He told so awesome. he told somebody when AT and T stroked that check to him for six hundred grand. He said, "I'm killing it." Right? Oh yeah. I was like, "Yeah, you are killing Own it. it." Own it. Own it. He he is just it's bad. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, anyway sorry. all right. So, so he, he does not have Michael Cohen as a lawyer. Yeah. That's so his his idea. new attorney says that my client looks forward to his day in court when he can rebut some of the falsehoods <laughs> that have been portrayed. <laughs> portrayed some words. He can rebut. <laughs> he can rebut uh, about him in the media. So the deal is this: is that um, police apparently caught him. Uh, defecating on the track at Holmdale High School. Just one, and just he's one the superintendent. Time, right? He's the superintendent of what school district? He is the not Holmdale. No, um, he's the superintendent of Kenilworth, New Jersey School District, which is uh, which is about thirty minutes away. Yep. <laughs> and so you know his his last name is Tramagilly. Um I totally just <laughs> mangled his name. <laughs> Um, Mr. Dramagilly. But anyway, T, let's get, let's get to superintendent. Poopy T. Get, get, to, get to the meat of it. Yeah, at about at around um, 5:50 a.m. <laughs> on April 30th, he was caught by police defecating on the track <laughs> at Homedale High School. Uh, but prior to that, school administrators—this could have been you, Mr. Craves. <laughs> Had been finding human feces <laughs> on, on a near daily occurrence. Oh my god! But police and school officials have, have declined to provide details on how long this had been an issue. Don't go away. We are going to have Johan Neem on the show when we come back. See you in a minute.
Dr. Johan N. Neem is a senior fellow at the University of Virginia's Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture and a professor of history at Western Washington University. He's the author of Creating a Nation of Joiners, Democracy and Civil Society in Early National Massachusetts, and the book that we'll be discussing tonight, fellas, Democracy Schools, the Rise of Public Education in America. Um, I'm going to kind of ask a 30,000-foot question. Uh, you can you can kind of focus it as much as you want. Uh, the, the book covers a comprehensive history of public ed in the United States. So you've spent all this time researching and looking backward on the history of public ed in the country. What do you believe the future of public education looks like in the United States? Yeah, that's a big question. I know, I know. I, I told you it was going to be big. So you do whatever yeah, you do well, whatever you want with it. So so one of the occupational hazards of historians is that we're trained to study the past and yet we sometimes project to the future, but we know we should not. Um, nonetheless, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a history teacher, I mean, I so guess, that hits close to my heart. Um, I think you know, seriously, I think, I think, I think we are at a time of reckoning. Yes. It, you know, maybe for the first time since, you know, maybe the struggles over desegregation, Mm -hmm. um, we are really uncertain about what the future of our public schools will be like. Right. Lots of Americans, you know, from inner cities to religious conservatives feel alienated from the schools. They're losing faith. Some of it is justified. Some of it has to do with political attacks on the schools over decades um, and the public sector more generally. Right. Um, but but whatever the cause, some real, some some rhetorical, um, there's a sense that institutions that we had taken for granted for a long time and that had deep public support are now at risk. And I think that, to me, is what makes this moment particularly notable, that that our public schools, which maybe 20 years ago, scholars as well as citizens would have seen as kind of these stable institutions, in fact, people would complain about how hard they are to change, right. seem really fragile and contingent. And I think that's new. Um, the future, I don't know. I mean, I think there are multiple paths. Mm-hmm. So you don't and, you don't think public education is path dependent that we're on some certain path that we can't get off of? I don't think we're on one path. Okay. I think there is a path that seems increasingly possible that some states have started down, which is to privatize uh, the delivery uh-huh. institutions, right? Um, either through vouchers or through various forms of charter schools at the extremes, businesses. Yeah. Uh, um, delivering public school, um, public schooling online, or one could say, um, delivering education online. Um, so there's there, there's an extreme version of privatization. Um, there's more moderate versions of choice. But I think the other piece that's changing is we're also changing the purposes, and mm-hmm. that is part of what inspired my book. Uh-huh. That it's not just how did schooling become a public good that I wanted to understand. You know, at the time of the revolution. It was still seen as a family responsibility. Yeah. But also, what were the public purposes? Because I think the real question I care about is, however we design or redesign or don't redesign the system we have, the purposes that animate it should be democratic. Right. And I think we're losing sight of that. And I think 
that is where I think the future to me seems most um, causes me the most anxiety. And 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 as I was reading through, it wasn't a section on Andrew Jackson, but the section that, that talked about um, education for autonomy. I just I kept having like these weird connections, not weird, but I, I see a lot of connections between the political climate that we have in our in our time right now with with the Trump presidency. Um, I, I can't say that he he has created it. I think it was there, and that maybe he's just the sure. the 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 fire, the the match that lit it. Um, what what kind of parallels do you see I, I, between these two time periods? And I imagine that you started this book, um, or did, uh, you started your research before the the present the current presidency? Yeah, I mean that's absolutely right. I think you know the book was written without any anticipation of the Trump presidency, but with a sense that education has been moving in that direction um, under both Democratic and Republican presidents and at the state level governors and legislatures. Sure. Um, there are a lot of parallels. I think one of the parallels that um, I see today is the common school reformers, people like Horace Mann. Right. They were, they struggled to convince taxpayers that, that, education had a public purpose, and that that public purpose included in, increasing access to the liberal arts and sciences, to a liberal education for citizenship. And a lot of taxpayers and a lot of people were just saying, well, that doesn't seem very practical. <laughs> and Didn't, horse, didn't both, horse man drive around, or, or not drive around, rode a horse around Massachusetts trying to convince people? Oh, yeah. He rode a horse, I think, you know, hundreds of miles, it's hard to imagine, you know, he doesn't look like, <laughs> kind of, he doesn't look like the cowboy. But, right, you, know, you gotta be in shape he, for that. But he, he's a tough guy, I guess, and he, um, <laughs> he, yeah, he rode his horse around trying to, trying to figure out what is the state of locally funded schools in his home state of Massachusetts, and trying to sort of explain that, you know, that in a democracy, increasing access to what had been at in many ways, an elite kind of education was necessary because everyone was a citizen, right? And everyone needed access to a rich liberal education. And he met a lot of people who said that just you know that's not practical. And we're starting to get that rhetoric, you know, both at the K twelve higher ed levels now that we want very practical education, and this other stuff is less valuable. And you know, you hear people mocking liberal arts majors at higher ed, but if we think about the Common Core. The heart of the Common Core is the phrase "college and career readiness," right? And it's really about preparing workers, and in a sense, that's a reduction or a lowering of our expectations of what pu public schooling ought to be. Wow! Um, and I, so I they, they I, were having that conversation then; we're having it now. I think that's right. one important parallel. I, I I I actually saw now that you mentioned the Common Core. I I, I think there was an interview um, that you had on on the YouTube uh, when you were talking about the Common Core. What do you see? How do you see that as a as a threat to public education? How, how do you make that comparison between? I, I would think that some people would say that Common Core has risen the standards um, for for students in the curriculum. But I, I may, correct me if I'm wrong. It seemed like um, maybe the argument you were making that is it's actually it could be hurting the public school system. Yeah, I want. I mean, I want to say there's a lot of good in the Common Core, right. um, and in many ways it has the potential to um, develop people, develop students' reading and writing capacities and, and much, you know, much more effectively. But I think the challenge is, I mean, there's several challenges. One is that its purpose is very clearly designed around 
the needs of employers, and it's very much wow. framed around um, college and career readiness. And so, in a sense, what it's seeking to produce are these kinds of instrumental transferable skills. And the framers of the Common Core have made very clear, like, we don't really care what's taught. <laughs> uh, we just want to assess that students can do these things that prepare them for college or career. And the challenge is that some of the stuff that's being left behind or there's not less time for because schools are focusing on meeting the standards, we're actually the kind of things that citizens need to think about, you know, history and literature and philosophy and, you know, um, and understanding the sciences and the kind of breadth of knowledge that a citizen needs. And so I think part of it is that the Common Core has a lot of good in it, but its purposes are undemocratic. And the way it's implemented means that there's less time for students to do some of the things that we need our citizens to be able to do, as well as human beings to engage in, sure. to explore some of these subjects. And so some of the democratic aspirations. So I guess what I, when I say it lowers the standards, what I mean is we had once expected our schools to do more. And even if at one measure it raises standards on certain assessments, based on certain assessments, what it's really asking of us is much less than what we should be asking our schools to do. That's that's fascinating. I want to I want to go back in time, and I know you don't necessarily direct uh, address this directly in the book, and and I love the book by the way. But um, thank you. When you when you in your research, if you for our listeners, if you had to kind of say what American the what Ameri- what model American public education is modeled after, um, wh- wh- where did we begin? What because wh- wh- we're you know, we're a country that that started from from a set of principles. Whose whose educational principles did we use to get our uh, the the education going in this country? So, you have one minute. Go. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That was a um, co- that was a Common Core question. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> um, I'm not, a, but then I'm not allowed to draw on any background knowledge. No, no none. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I think I think the at the heart of your question, if I understand it is why did Americans, after the revolution, start investing in the expansion of schooling? Yes. And, and the answer, the initial answer that people like Thomas Jefferson and others gave was civic, that they came out of a tradition going back to the Romans um, that suggested that citizens needed the liberal arts, the arts of a free person, right. liberal meaning, you know, liberty. And there was a real concern that citizens, if you're going to democratize access to citizenship, you also need to prepare citizens for their new duties. Mm -hmm. And that meant not just democratizing access to knowledge, but also cultivating civic virtues, the dispositions of citizens to care about the public good. Mm -hmm. One of the challenges, I think, compared to today, you know, going back to the call, to the Common Core and the kind of rhetoric around education today is we talk a lot about increasing people's incomes. And for the generation that, that, that put it into the state constitutions, the revolutionary era state constitutions that we need to expand education, it was really the opposite. How do we overcome self-interest so that people are, are committed to the common good? And that was their concern as well as their kind of hope right. and dream. So the common good didn't include a whole group of of people in the United States, which were 
African slaves, um, blacks uh, in this country. Um, I'm curious about, in your research as a historian, um, schools were not conceptualized in this country to include a whole race of people. So they really, they really weren't they, well, anybody they, that was not white. Yeah, anybody that was not right. white. So, what, talk to us about how you have, how you saw that historically um, when you were when you were writing the book, and 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 now our schools, you know, are more inclusive. Some might argue that they're still not set up to meet the needs of of uh, kids that at one time were excluded. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yes, yes, and yes. I, mean, <laughs> I think I think we have to. There, there are two pieces to this, right? One is that their democratic, meaning the revolutionary generations' democratic aspirations, um, are still inspiring, but of course they were limited. Right. And in the South, uh, enslaved people had no access to formal education, and right. in fact because they feared literacy, um, to the extent that enslaved people learned to read and write, they did it in secret often. Yeah. Um, some did, and, and, and that's very powerful, and you really get a sense of how powerful education is by realizing yeah. how important it was for those enslaved people to learn at yeah. risk to their, to their, to their lives. Um, in the North, the story is more about um, struggles over integration that begin with the beginning of the common schools um, in the 18, early 1800s, um, African Americans recognized that access to the same schools was a, was access to the, to the nation. Right. That these schools were not only preparing citizens; they actually made a claim on who is entitled to citizenship. And so, African Americans pushed very hard for integrated schools, and in many northern states, that happened. But at the same time, there was increasing racism leading up to the Civil War in the North um, as well as the South, and you know access to voting and things like that were actually becoming more difficult for African Americans in the North. At the same time, that that um, people were turning against slavery, so racism was there at the beginning. Um, what I find interesting was there was a struggle in the antebellum period. On one hand, religious minorities, you know, many. Um, Lutherans in Pennsylvania, certainly new Catholic immigrants, sure. uh, felt that the schools were biased against their faith and that they wanted to opt out, where African-American leaders were often making the case that opting out in a diverse society is actually dangerous because what schools really should be is common. And we need to push the common school ideal further so that all Americans go to school together right? and that and that that would empower citizens, but also ensure that all the members of the nation are brought into these schools. And we're struggling with that question right now when we think about school choice. Yeah, yeah. Is that still an aspiration for us? And I think that's that's an open question that we need to ask ourselves as Americans. Yeah, and and that's where I get um, that's where I get confused as an educator uh, because you, we started off the interview. You mentioned just the diversification of education in the country, and some of that I don't know if that's inherently bad. Um, choice, a lot of the a lot of the for profit kinds of um, you know tutoring services, you name it. There's all kinds of. It's become quite an industry in this country, and um, and I do 
I do think though, sometimes that diversification is not always done for the right reasons. Right. I mean, I, I think we have situations where again, it's, it's being done to try to exclude kids. Yeah, I think, I think there's two arguments, um, for this, for various models of school choice. There's, there's what I think is a weaker argument, which is that we need, we need market competition because in many ways, We've seen in the private prison industry and the private university industry that the for-profit model applied to public goods doesn't necessarily produce better results for, for the constituents. I think the broader school choice question, though, and the more deep fundamental one has to do with our pluralism. Right. You know, when um, conservative evangelicals, but also conservative Muslims and Jews feel alienated from the schools, right. I think the question we're facing as Americans is, and and Secretary Betsy DeVos has raised this very explicitly. She believes that we are such a diverse nation that we should encourage a choice so families can choose the appropriate school for them, regard you know, based on their faith, their values, their politics, what have you. Mm-hmm. And the question I face, I think we face, is is that is are we so diverse that we need to encourage that model, or are we so diverse and therefore we need to encourage our diverse communities to come together in common schools so that there's something that binds us together as Americans. And I think that is a deep question that we're struggling with uh, as a nation. Yeah, I would, I would agree. That's what we've, that's what we've talked a lot about um, this year. We, I don't know if you, if you know that we have a special segment that Casey does, it's called Dear Bets. <laughs> so you should tune in Dr. Neem and listen sometimes where we rake we rake the secretary over the coals. Anyway, go Bet- ahead. Betsy's a loyal listener. I don't know. She, she's well, a loyal listener. But I, I think she's raising a real question. Which, I mean, I think the the question of pluralism right. and how should schools accommodate it. Um, that's a real question. I mean, it's not an easy question to answer one way or the other. No, but uh, what I, I think that my biggest rub on that is, I, I'd hate to say that she's right. But I mean, there. <laughs> I mean, there are there are regular public schools that have not served our students of color across the board, and in some ways, I feel like for some communities, it's an act of desperation because the traditional public school model has not fit the has not closed the opportunity gaps that exist. So in that oh, sense, I don't, I don't deny that. I think that's know? absolutely right. But but I, but I also don't think, and on converse to that, I don't think. That allowing for these charter schools and and allowing for um, the capitalistic model of, of education is the way to go. Um, so I, I don't know what the answer is. I, I'm not K- sure. K- Casey and I, Dr. Neen, both worked in a um, highly managed choice model. Um, I was the principal of a of a of a middle school in a consortium, um, and. You know, one of the things I say about choice is that oftentimes uh, somebody has to be last um, because that's just the way it works out. The pie rarely gets split evenly uh, when when you're when you're marketing and trying to attract kids. Um, And it can be very challenging for whoever, whichever school is having the most trouble. Sure. Um, And and we, Casey and I kind of endured that. So and I did not embrace that as an educator. But over time. There are some things about that. You know, I did see in some ways how choice empowered parents and made parents really feel like um, and, and these were parents of color that they had they had some say in what they thought was best for their kids. Yeah, I mean, I think I think what you're pointing to when you said a highly managed charter system is that 
there's not one model of of how to structure charter systems in the United States. There's multiple models, and some are the Wild West, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, and some are you know like there is there is a tradition of um, democratically overseen charter institutions. I mean, in some ways, I work at a university that has a board that's appointed by the governor. It's a chartered institution. Right. Um, and it has a certain level of autonomy um, in return for being um, democratically governed um, and, you know, through the appointment process um, right. of its board of trustees. I think, I think there are, and I think that's, that's the conversation we need to have is if, if we think that we need to move beyond the traditional kind of district uh, model, how do we ensure that the charters we produce still enable citizens to have a voice over those schools, yeah. not just parents, yeah. but citizens? And how do we ensure that those schools are still, you know, democratic institutions? And there's no reason to think it's not possible. Right. Um, but there are but there are states that have embraced models that undermined democratic governance of schools right. and and local voice in certain ways. And I think the rhetoric of, and one of the challenges is the rhetoric of empowering families is actually different than a rhetoric of empowering citizens. Right. And, and one of the big shifts I document in this book is the shift from schooling as a family responsibility to schooling as a public responsibility, as a civic responsibility. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, what we're, we have to be careful, I think, that we don't, in, a, in the process of saying we're empowering families, reprivatize the, the responsibility for schooling. Right. And, but I don't think that, but I'm not, I'm not saying in any sense that therefore, you know, there's no, there's no reforms of our system that are, that are useful and valuable or that our certain schools are not failing and need some reforms. You know, I think what I'm trying to say is what are, what are the ideals or principles that should govern our reforms? Mm-hmm. Honestly, I, um, I could, I could talk, I, I we could talk to you all day cause yeah. this has been yeah. awesome. Well, I'm when, sure this is, these are things you know more about than I do. No, sure. no, I was just looking Casey. I was thinking how much smarter we feel talking <laughs> so, to you. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, we really appreciate you coming on. It, yeah. It's, uh, I really enjoyed the book and I hope other people will pick it up. And I know we don't have a huge amount of listeners, but we have a, a sizable amount that really treasure this kind of conversation about, um, where education has come and where we're headed. And with that, I, I, I actually want to see what we talked about the challenges uh, of our education system briefly on this show today. But what, what kind of things do you see in our, in our um, education discussions, education movements? What gives you hope? I think what gives me hope is that the election of Trump and the appointment of Betsy DeVos has been a clarifying moment for a lot of Americans. Mm-hmm. And and we're asking ourselves, you know, DeVos has forced us or really, you know, asked us to ask ourselves, what are the purposes of schooling? And I think the fact that we're having that conversation and that it's it's obliging us to say, wait, you know, there are a lot of us, I mean, you know, middle-class families who move into the right district are, you know, are as much to blame as anyone else, right? Sure. Um, and we've been putting our private needs first. And, of course, we're parents. We care. We love. It's not. There's no sinisterness here. But, right. but in many ways, it leads to these outcomes that are, don't always serve the public good. 
And I think we're starting to say, well, let's make sure as we reform our schools, and even if we embrace radical reforms, that public purposes are, are guiding those reforms and democratic purposes. And I think part of what I hope my book does is doesn't tell us how to reform, but it tells us or it asks us to think about what do we want our schools to do and then what kind of reforms will make those things more possible. Right. Mm-hmm. My fear is we move in, the, in a direction that doesn't. My hope is that we're at a moment where that conversation is happening and, and we're asking those questions openly, and so this might be a moment of renewal. Yeah, so we're back to where we started, those several paths. We'll see which yeah. one we, we go down. Um, yes. The book, folks, is Democracy Schools, uh, The Rise of Public Education in America uh, by Dr. Johan N. Neem. Uh, Dr. Neem, tell our listeners where they can find you on social media. We know you're on social media. Uh, where can they find you and follow your work? Well, uh, probably the best way is my is just to follow me on Twitter. Okay. My Twitter handle is just my name. Okay. Um, but but I also, you know, I I hope people get something out of the book. I okay. hope I hope it enriches the conversation we're having about our future. Well, I I no doubt it no doubt it does and um Absolutely it does. You, you've 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 made our night on Ed's Not Dead. So, Johan, thanks for coming on the show and we'll get you back in the future. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. Uh, all right, take care. All right, bye-bye. Welcome back to episode 19 of Ed's Not Dead. I feel a little bit weird that we had <laughs> Dr. Neem, who was a great interview. Yes. Um, I think we all feel smarter. I hope the oh, audience, audience yeah. does. Great listen. interview. Yep. Um, we'll, felt- we'll get to that part in a second, Mr. Crable. But I feel weird that we had him on the same episode that we talked about the pooping. Well, that's yeah, yeah. fine. It's, yeah, it's I, okay. I, I'm more concerned about our other co-host who... I think should be more equal in the amount of sometimes input that you he has. gotta let your co-host ask all the questions. I just you, I don't want to seem you, like I'm you know encroaching on your <laughs> territory of of being part of the show. Anybody's wondering? You know, I was definitely here. You're still part of the band. I was here. You know we haven't pushed didn't you ask out. any questions. Well, that's so, fine. That's, you're yeah, right. That's, Yes. Well, we were glad you were you were here, and um, I, I do believe that I think next year in season two, uh, we'd love to get Doctor Neem back on the show as our uh, regular uh, Ed historian. Yeah, all things education. Yeah, I like he, that, and and just and not just historian. I mean, he had a tremendous knowledge yeah. of not only where we've been in this country, but where we may be going. Yeah. So, Crable, you can find that out when you actually listen to this episode. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> All right. Um, so thanks again to Dr. Neem. And, Very gracious. Uh, I think Mr. Crable has – oh, before we do his sh- – he's going to do a he's going to do a quiz for us. He's taking show. over my yeah. territory. It's, it's, yeah, okay. I'll it's going to be you and me tonight, I'll buddy. seed it to And, him. you know, I usually win these. Yes, you do. All right. So you have a human interest story. Someone of, of importance passed away this week. So Ronald Walk. Woke? How do you say his last name? He's very woke. woke. Actually, he's not woke, woke. anymore. It's woke. woke. <laughs> Found, geez, that's really that was terrible. That is not nice. Too soon. Too soon. Uh, founder of Education Week. He died. 
Uh, he has passed away. Uh, the reason why I, th- I thought this was a, a good uh, article to bring up because it's something that you know we you can go to People Magazine and you can find out stuff about pop culture. You can go to Newsweek and find out information about the general whatever's going on in the country, but um, you don't have publications right now that are focused on education, which we you know we're biased, but we can argue that it's the most important thing for a country. And he created the magazine called Ed Week and. Uh, I just thought it was interesting to bring it up. Unfortunately, there's a paywall, and so <laughs> I have to. Well, I can only I can limit my views three times a month, and it's expensive. But so uh, where did, where did you get this quote? One yeah, in, like, in 1981, Ronald this... A. Woke was about to launch a new national newspaper on education when one of his reporters called on deadline with a scoop. So this is where this is how Ed Week got its start. Yeah, she had obtained. Finish the quote. She had yeah, obtained ahead. a Reagan Can't administration memo outlining a plan to push the year-old education department out of the cabinet. Ooh, yeah, Reagan tried to kill the Department of Ed mm. and sharply it, limit its role in American schools. Mister Woke cursed with glee and ordered her back to the newsroom to start writing. And I like him already. I, I think that's. Uh, I mean, the the education department was only formed under Carter. Car- yeah, I know. So yeah. it, it. I think. It, you know, it it shows um, someone who happened to have someone had had a leaker. Continuing our theme, <laughs> someone had a leaker, and I don't know, pushed education into the spotlight. I think that in in a positive way. Yeah. So. Yep. Anyway. So, well, Mr. Anyway. Woke, thank you. Yeah. Yep. All, All right, right, my turn. <laughs> I have a segment for you guys, a little game. And whenever you win, you're going to win that silly little mallard back there behind Mallard with a cold. That's right. That's a hand-carved mallard. We've had had ends.dead pictures of you with the mallard on your lap. Mm, (laughs) Right? Probably. That's probably right. Yeah, right sitting right there. Weirdo. In the man cave. Paraphernalia. Okay, all right. All right, so the game is, I'm going to give, this has nothing to do with education, by the way. Too narrow of a topic. (laughs) I I have other interests. So I'm going to give you a this day in history, and it's, you know, not like today. You're going to give us the event. Yes. And we have to give you? The year. So we'll give a little segue, tell you what the event was, and you're going to give the year. Whoever's closer gets a point. Is it like a on the dot year or like yeah, two a, to no, three years? No, no, it's a year. So like Michael Jackson's Thriller, 1984. Right. Oh, okay. I was going to yeah. say 81. See, I would have lost yeah. right there. Okay. Oh, you're getting nervous, aren't you? Yeah, Casey. 1984. <laughs> I was in. I was in junior high. I was. I was in ninth grade. I was at Benjamin Benny. The, the real question is whether Casey's actually going to make it through all the questions before quitting. <laughs> <laughs> I will probably quit after the that's, second one. That's the real question. Okay. Right. No, that's I might not do. do. You're a historian, buddy. So hold on. You got this. Hold on. Hold on. Now, you, you just guess a date. Rules. Rules. You just guess a year. Rules. Just guess a year. I, once you finish the sentence, are we to guess? Or are you going to no, be no, like, you just get go. a chance. You just get a chance. Can we interrupt you mid? Statement. No, no it's listen, my, it's my re- segment, so I get to talk. I want to know the rules. Long. I want to know the ground rules. So okay, it's, it's, not, it's s- not Jeopardy. It's okay. just a, okay. you know, like how you do it, but now you're me and I'm you. All right. <sighs> May 11th this year, dust storm sweeps from the Great Plains across the eastern states. So in this year, a massive storm sends millions of tons of topsoil flying across the parched Great Plains region of the United States. 1935. As far east as you New can't York, interrupt him. Boston, Sorry. and Atlanta. 1927. The answer is... I said 35. 1934. Congratulations, Mr. Dodd. 
That would be the dust ball. That so hold on. So he gets points, yes. even though he interrupted you. <laughs> oh, no, he's going to try yes, to. He does. Look, he's that trying to get me out of technicality right away. Well, I just knew it right away. It's garbage. Okay, I was close. It's unfair. I was so it's zero, zero. Okay. <laughs> one, one point for Robbie. Okay, guys. Right. Stupid rules. I'm just reading through. There's nothing else interesting in that article. All right. Okay. So, all right. May 13th on this date, President Polk declares war on Mexico. Ooh, that's a hard one. You want to go first, Mr. Sids? War on Mexico. I didn't even know we had a president named Polk. James K. 1872. Okay. Mm, I'm going to go a little later. I'm going to say 1885. Both horribly wrong. On May 13th, 1846, the U.S. Congress overwhelmingly votes in favor of President James K. Polk's request to declare war on Mexico in a dispute over Texas. 1842? Yes. So Texas, no, 46. 46. So Texas had seceded. Right, um, Gadsden Purchase. Right, no, that was different. That was mm. in Arizona. Okay, uh, seceded and so, then was an independent republic for a number of years, and then we decided that we were going to annex them. Okay, and they decided they were going to allow us to right. annex so that, them. I don't know why I thought that led to war. So this was pre-Civil War. Okay. Yeah, All right. I didn't realize it was so close to Civil War. Yes, actually, okay. when I saw that, that was surprising right. to me. Huh. But yeah, right before the Civil War. All right, War-ish. good cool. one. All right. All right. May 14th. Actually, did I get a point for that? Because I was closer? Yes, you did. 1-1. Okay, one, one. I, was, I was like 50 years off. That is lame that he should get a point he's for so, that. So I poor. totally disagree with rules that. Rules of the game. Well, you know. All the right, game. fine, okay, fine. Zero, zero. <laughs> All right, May 14th. In this year, Lewis and Clark Ooh. depart. Ooh. 1801. Bob D. Bobby D. Big Dizzle? I would say 1809. What'd you say? 1801. Ooh, keep up, the gentleman. 1804. So that would be a point for Casey. Oh, that hurts. One year after the United States doubled its territory with the the Louisiana Louisiana Purchase, Purchase. Lewis and Clark Expedition leaves St. Louis, Missouri on a mission to explore the northwest, excuse me, northwest from the Mississippi River to the Pacific Ocean. An, un- right. an onion article recently said uh, Two Trump one. decides to pull up, pull out of the Louisiana Purchase. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. I was dying. All right, four more. I chose right. an odd number. Okay. All right. Uh, May 15th, this date, Madeline Albright was born. Uh, I'm going to say 1933. 1937. The answer is... 1937. Oh, oh. For, a, for a bonus point, Robbie, yes. to come back, can you um, name the country that she was born in? Uh, Germany. Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia. Oh. You, what do you mean bonus point? That came out of nowhere. Uh, yeah, I just am, made it up am as I, I went along. Am I down three now? You're like down 20 to one. No, I'm down All four right. to three to one. So May 15, 1937, <laughs> Madeline Albright, America's first female secretary of state, is born. You know what she was born as? Maria Jana Korbelova. Very nice. She was born in Prague, Czechoslovakia. Sounds like now a, the sounds Czech like, Republic. Sounds like a tennis player. She's had to, she had to escape Czechoslovakia and um, another country. Um, I can't remember what. She had to escape twice. That's She all became Secretary of State. Yeah. Unreal. It's pretty wild. Yep. That is impressive. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, he's, look how, look how, look he's at very it, proud of it, Oh, he's sitting so. No, I don't, I don't like this. this is, <laughs> none of this is pleasure. All right. Well, this, this is. If you can't get this one right, then you're basically fired. Both of us are. Yeah. Okay. You're fired from your job. Well, I already got fired. May 17th, on this date, 
Brown versus Board of Ed is 1954. decided. 1954. Oh, it's 1954. <laughs> yes, 1954. Go we on. review. That's a tie. I'm Everybody back. I'm back. No, that is not true. Of course, it's I said a tie. it first. It doesn't matter. If you clearly rewind. I said this is not Jeopardy. That's right. Boom. That is lame. You should have let him go first. <laughs> Bad strategy, Bob. All right. May 20th of this year. Two more questions. Levi Strauss and Jacob Davis received patent for their blue jeans. Well, that's a good one. Uh, I'm going to say eight, 1860. 1887. We do math. <laughs> oh, it's so close. 1873. So Robbie was one year closer. Yeah. Well done. Yeah, on this day, I'm back in it. <laughs> San Francisco businessman <laughs> I think, Levi I had a Strauss. Bonus point. Well, hold on. San Francisco businessman Levi Strauss and Reno Nevada Taylor Jacob Davis are given a patent to create work pants reinforced with metal rivets, oh. marking the birth of one of the world's most famous garments. Levi's dungarees, blue jeans. Wear some Levi's. All right. For argument's sake, we'll say it's three two. Casey, that's wrong. No, it's actually, actually four two. Four two. And so, and right. so that's four. the game point right there. That's the – If you get it, I will do a double a two-point question uh, to okay. see if you can right. win. Go ahead. But if you don't, then you just lose. This is a hard All one. right. May 21st. A lot of May ones here. Yes, it's May. Because we're in May, May. guy. Oh, okay. Duh. <laughs> when people listen, it's good. it might actually be the date. Okay, that's go, ahead. go ahead. May 21st of this year, the American Red Cross is founded. Oh. Hmm. I'm going to say 1905. Mm, I'm going to say 1902. There will be no bonus question because Casey got it. 1881. So in Washington, D.C., humanitarians Clara Barton, and this guy never gets any credit, Adolphus Solomons found the American National Red Cross organization established to provide humanitarian aid to victims of war and natural disasters in congruence with the International Ooh. Red Cross. That's the papers I'm reading. I, I, would, I, <laughs> well would, I don't know much about the American like Red that. Cross, but I would say that they're probably one of the most important institutions we've ever yeah. founded in this country. I agree. Claire Barton was... Who was the, Claire who Barton was the, who was the, the communist that we talked about earlier in the season? <laughs> the <laughs> communist. Remember? Or she was like a socialist or something? Oh, um... Helen Keller. Helen Keller. Helen right. Keller. Episode one or episode yeah. two. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What was she, was she a communist or a socialist? She was. What's the difference? A communist. Communist. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Good game, Mister Sids. And Mister. And I have to hand it to Mister Crable. He was. He had a lot of confidence as the host. That's of the, true. Of, That's true. Of oh, the show. Thank, thank you. you. Very down. good. You did. Right. So before we leave tonight, uh, Casey, you can take anything in Robbie's house. <laughs> <laughs> you want that's your consolation until next August you want or my September. Middle, my middle school trophy over there. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that was looks the, like a genie uh, lamp. Yeah. Anyway, um, all right. Well, good game. Good game. I didn't do quite as well tonight as I usually do. That's um, good. We'll call it a tie. All right. So this has been episode nineteen of Ed's Not Dead season finale. That's right. I guess we are signing off for the summer. Would that be correct? That's right. We don't have any like surprise episodes coming or anything like that. You want to tease anything? No, nothing to no. tease. Oh, uh, oh blog. No. Oh yeah, we're we're going to be blogging yes. throughout the course of the summer, building up our content. And um, I I put out a tweet on on Twitter. Coincidentally, <laughs> that's weird. Yeah. I don't use Twitter. Uh, as Ed's not dead, which required like me to sign in and then Casey to send <laughs> me a never code. Do, I've never done that because yeah, you have to. He like has quintuple verification. I'm like, oh, just let me log on. Boy, guy. that's a surprise. Yeah. 
Who's going to hack this account? There's no personal information whatsoever. Just give me the GD code. Uh, it's, it's very me. I have like four-step uh, four authentication. Anyway. The just one- like he just ordered his tires from freaking Price Club or whatever he did. Price Club. Price Chopper. Go ahead. Anyway, the point is. We're going to make a point, and I haven't told you guys this. We need more iTunes uh, reviews. That's true. Yeah. Okay. So we got That's two. True. I put out a little tweet. We got two more reviews. Oh, good. Yeah. So we we need, we need to get on the on the radar of the K-12 store, or whatever you call it, on iTunes. If so. people review our podcast on iTunes, we get it, – it, hap- it helps our search results. Exactly. It directly yep. impacts our search yep. results. So. And we will read their yeah. reviews. Of course. On, yeah, Only of course. if it's five. Right. So yeah, look look forward this summer um, to lots of of blog posts and tweets about it. And I certainly have been prolific with the blog posts. <laughs> you, I got to tell you, you've That's really you've really gone at it. I and, mean, uh, they're not all published. Full, with, and, uh, you know, it's all archived. And you guys, and, uh, we're in the editing phase yeah. of Robbie's post. You guys right. have been very charitable <laughs> to me about not getting on me too too hard about the oh, blog posts. What? Any 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 thoughts? Any energy on getting some guest bloggers? No. Okay. Great. <laughs> Yeah. Casey, this is all about um, yeah. mostly me, but a little bit of you guys too. Yeah. So yeah. It's about signing it. off, uh, and then no, what we will we see could is, do that. I, I could see us doing that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Give people a pedestal. We are going to. Um, if I say it, it might actually have to happen. So maybe I shouldn't say it. Yeah, so we can be. always oh. back out. But we are. Crable, this is such the antithesis of you. Go ahead. That's right. I'm raising expectations just yes. at this point, people. Uh, we are talking about in doing a show, a back to school show, absolutely live. Yeah, live. Um, at a local establishment here, Chatter. It gives me anxiety thinking about it. Yeah, who, they have a podcast studio. It's a bar, restaurant, uh, establishment run by, you know, you don't know, Tony Kornheiser, Maury Povich, yep. and some other donk. But, Maury. Yeah. But yeah, we're going to do a live coming uh, coming back. Uh, the and, third donk would be Gary Williams. Oh, that's the right. National it is. championship winning oh, coach of the Maryland Terrapins. I forgot about that. Yeah. I love yeah. Maryland the, basketball. Bi- the, big, the big three of local sports. Yeah. Yeah, and <laughs> I know he's, uh, he's totally unimpressed. <laughs> but anywho, we're gonna do it and with, gonna be awesome. in conjunction with a local nonprofit. Yeah, we are. Oh, yeah. I yeah. forgot about that. That's yep. right. Yep. I'm not. I'm not. Um, I have some ideas about that nonprofit. Yeah, I. I, I, I don't I, know if we should throw it out there yet. Okay, we so well, let's. Well, then let's throw yet. this out. Yes, the uh, Koch brothers. Any, <laughs> <laughs> they are a nonprofit. Are um, they? Any any nonprofit folks out there that are listening oh, there you go. that work with education, uh, contact us if you're interested in partnering with us for our 2018-2019 uh, kickoff uh, live show. Extravaganza. We, extravaganza. That's we, right. We would love to talk to you about uh, how we could support your your educational endeavors. Yeah. Yep. So that'd be cool. Yeah, that'll be that'll be good. I'm glad you put it out there, Mr. Crapes, because we need to. We need to up our expectations. We've had- That'll force us force our hand. Yep. I said it, man. Yeah, yep. So let it be said. Let it be written. It has been a blast this year. We've had fun. Um, I think uh, thanks to both of you guys for doing this, and I think a special thanks, Mr. Craves. You probably agree with me with for Mr. Siddons for all of his efforts to book oh, our yeah. exemplary lineup of guests. And your editing skills, uh-huh. Mr. Krabs, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have really just provided a space. <laughs> that, that's been my contribution, it's but, but it's been good. Yeah. It's been good. We've had a, Having to plug in all the wires tonight 
allowed me to appreciate yeah. all the stuff that you do. Yeah, I make Chris. it look so easy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We we know you and I both know that he's done it secretly just to get away from his family. <laughs> the editing, but <laughs> Owen in August, if you're listening out there. <laughs> In a couple of years. <laughs> anyway, um, thanks to Dr. Johan Neem for joining us tonight on episode 19. Folks, thanks for tuning in all year. Please spread the word about Ed's Not Dead. You can follow me at RW Dot on Twitter, at Mr. At Mr. Peter Cravel, <laughs> at Peter Cravel, and at CH Siddons. Ed's Not Dead PC. Yep. Uh, we'll see you in season two in August. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>